Section 1 of Secrets of the Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maggie Travers. Secrets of the Woods by William J. Long. Section 1 Tookies, the Frayed One. Part 1. Little Tookies the wood mouse, the frayed one, as Simo calls him, always makes two appearances when you squeak to bring him out. First, after much peeking, he runs out of his tunnel, sits up once on his hind legs, rubs his eyes with his paws, looks up for the owl, and behind him for the fox, and straight away at the tent where the man lives. Then he dives back headlong into his tunnel with a rustle of leaves and a frightened whistle, as if Kupkoe's, the little owl, had seen him. That is to reassure himself. In a moment he comes back softly to see what kind of crumbs you have given him. No wonder Tookies is so timid, for there is no place in earth or air or water outside his own little doorway under the mossy stone where he is safe. Above him the owls watch by night, and the hawks by day. Around him not a prowler of the wilderness, from Mooween the bear, down through a score of gradations, to Kagox the bloodthirsty little weasel, but will sniff under every old log in the hope of finding a wood mouse, and if he takes a swim, as he is fond of doing, not a big trout in the river but leaves his eddy to rush at the tiny ripple holding bravely across the current. So, with all these enemies waiting to catch him the moment he ventures out, Tookies must needs make one or two false starts in order to find out where the coast is clear. That is why he always dodges back after his first appearance, why he gives you two or three swift glimpses of himself, now here, now there, before coming out into the light. He knows his enemies are so hungry so afraid he will get away or that somebody else will catch him that they jump for him the moment he shows a whisker so eager are they for his flesh and so sure after missing him that the swoop of wings or the snap of red jaws has scared him into permanent hiding that they pass on to other trails and when a prowler watching from behind a stump sees tookies flash out of sight and hears his startled squeak he thinks naturally that the keen little eyes have seen the tail, which he forgot to curl close enough, and so sneaks away as if ashamed of himself. Not even the fox, whose patience is without end, has learned the wisdom of waiting for Tookie's second appearance, and that is the salvation of the little frayed one. From all these enemies, Tookie's has one refuge, the little arched nest beyond the pretty doorway under the mossy stone. Most of his enemies can dig, to be sure, but his tunnel winds about in such a way that they never can tell from the looks of his doorway where it leads to, and there are no snakes in the wilderness to follow and find out. Occasionally, I have seen where Mooween the bear has turned the stone over and clawed the earth beneath, but there is generally a tough root in the way, and Mooween concludes that he is taking too much trouble for so small a mouthful and shuffles off to the log where the red ants live. On his journeys through the woods, Tookies never forgets the dangerous possibilities. 
His progress is a series of jerks, and whisks, and jumps, and hidings. He leaves his doorway after much watching, and shoots like a minnow across the moss to an upturned root. There he sits and listens, rubbing his whiskers nervously. Then he glides along the root for a couple of feet, drops to the ground, and disappears. He is hiding there under a dead leaf. A moment of stillness, and he jumps like a jack-in-the-box. Now he is sitting on a leaf that covered him, rubbing his whiskers again, looking back over his trail as if he heard footsteps behind him, then another nervous dash, a squeak which proclaims at once his escape and his arrival, and he vanishes under the old moss-grown log where his fellows live, a whole colony of them. All these things, and many more, I discovered the first season that I began to study the wild things that live within sight of my tent. I had been making long excursions after bear and beaver, following on wild goose chases after old Whitehead the eagle and Kagagos the wild woods raven that always escaped me, only to find that within the warm circle of my campfire little wild folk were hiding whose lives were more unknown and quite as interesting as the greater creatures I had been following. One day, as I returned quietly to camp, I saw Suimo quite lost in watching something near my tent. He stood beside a great birch tree, one hand resting against the bark that he would claim next winter for his new canoe. The other hand still grasped his axe which he had picked up a moment before to quicken the tempo of the bean-kettle song. His dark face peered behind the tree, with a kind of childlike intensity written all over. I stole near without his hearing me, but I could see nothing. The woods were all still. Kilolit was dozing by his nest, the chickadees had vanished, knowing that it was not mealtime, and Miko the red squirrel had been made to jump from the fir top to the ground so often that now he kept sullenly to his own hemlock across the island, nursing his sore feet and scolding like a fury whenever I approached. Still Simo watched, as if a bear were approaching his bait, till I whispered, Quie, Simo, what is it? Nadwar kachitokis, I see a little frayed one, he said, unconsciously dropping into his own dialect which is the softest speech in the world, so soft that wild things are not disturbed when they hear it, thinking it only a louder sough of the pines, or a softer tunking of ripples on the rocks. Oh, Bakash, see? He wash him face in your little cup. And when I tiptoed to his side, there was Tuki sitting on the rim of my drinking cup, in which I had left a new leader to soak for the evening's fishing scrubbing his face diligently, like a boy who is watched from behind to see that he slights not his ears or his neck. Remembering my own boyhood on cold mornings, I looked behind him to see if he were also under compulsion, but there was no other mouse in sight. He would scoop up a double handful of water in his paws, rub it rapidly over his nose and eyes, and then behind his ears, and on the spots that wake you up quickest when you're sleepy. Then another scoop of water, and another vigorous rub, ending behind his ears as before. Suimo was full of wonder, for
for an Indian notices few things in the woods besides those that pertain to his trapping and hunting, and to see a mouse wash his face was an incomprehensible to him as to see me read a book. But all wood mice are very cleanly. They have none of the strong odors of our house mice. Afterwards, while getting acquainted, I saw him wash many times in the plate of water that I kept filled near his den, but he never washed more than his face and the sensitive spot behind his ears. Sometimes, however, when I have seen him swimming in the lake or river, I have wondered whether he were going on a journey, or just bathing for the love of it, as he washed his face in my cup. I left the cup where it was and spread a feast for the little guest, cracker crumbs and a bit of candle end. In the morning they were gone, the signs of several mice telling plainly who had been called in from the wilderness byways. That was the introduction of man to beast. Soon they came regularly. I had only to scatter crumbs and squeak a few times like a mouse, when little streaks and flashes would appear on the moss or among the faded gold tapestries of old birch leaves, and the little wild things would come to my table, their eyes shining like jet, their tiny paws lifted to rub their whiskers or to shield themselves from the fear under which they lived continually. They were not all alike, quite the contrary. One, the same who had washed in my cup, was gray and old, and wise from much dodging of enemies. His left ear was split from a fight, or an owl's claw, probably, that just missed him as he dodged under a root. He was at once the shyest and boldest of the lot. For a day or two he came with marvelous stealth, making use of every dead leaf and root tangle to hide his approach, and shooting across the open spaces so quickly that one knew not what had happened, just a dun streak which ended in nothing, and the brown leaf gave no sign of what it sheltered. But once assured of his ground, he came boldly. This great man-creature with his face close to the table, perfectly still before his eyes, with a hand that moved gently if it moved at all, was not to be feared. That took keys felt instinctively, and this strange fire with hungry odors, and the white tent, and the comings and goings of men who were masters of the woods, kept fox and lynx and owl far away. That he learned after a day or two. Only the mink, who crept in at night to steal the man's fish, was to be feared. So Tookhees presently gave up his nocturnal habits and came out boldly into the sunlight. Ordinarily the little creatures come out in the dusk, when their quick movements are hidden among the shadows that creep and quiver. But with fear gone, they are only too glad to run about in the daylight, especially when good things to eat are calling them. Besides the veteran, there was a little mother mouse, whose tiny gray jacket was still big enough to cover a wonderful mother love, as I afterwards found out. She never ate at my table, but carried her fare away into hiding, not to feed her little ones, they were too small as yet, but, thinking in some dumb way, behind the bright little eyes, that they needed her and that her life must be spared with greater precaution for their sakes. She would steal timidly to my table, always appearing from under a gray shred of bark on a fallen birch log, following the same path, first to a mossy stone, then to a dark hole under a root, 
then to a low break, and along the underside of a billet of wood to the mouse-table. There she would stuff both cheeks hurriedly till they bulged as if she had a toothache, and steal away by the same path, disappearing at last under the shred of grey bark. For a long time it puzzled me to find her nest, which I knew could not be far away. It was not in the birch-log where she disappeared. That was hollow the whole length. Nor was it anywhere beneath it. Some distance away was a large stone, half covered by the green moss which reached up from every side. The most careful search here had failed to discover any trace of Tookie's doorway. So one day, when the wind blew half a gale, and I was going out on the lake alone, I picked up this stone to put in the bow of my canoe. That was to steady the little craft by bringing her nose down to grip the water. Then the secret was out, and there it was in a little dome of dried grass among some spruce roots under the stone. The mother was away foraging, but a faint, sibilant squeaking within the dome told me that the little ones were there, and hungry as usual. As I watched, there was a swift movement in a tunnel among the roots, and the mother mouse came rushing back. She paused for a moment, lifting her forepaws against a root to sniff what danger threatened. Then she saw my face bending over the opening, a too, Brute, and she darted into the nest. In a moment she was out again and disappeared into her tunnel, running swiftly with her little ones hanging to her sides by a grip that could not be shaken, all but one, a delicate pink creature that one could hide in a thimble and that snuggled down in the darkest corner of my hand confidently. End of section one. Recording by Maggie Travers.